This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, July 10th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. Why are Republicans so bad at courting a generation that may well be very receptive to a free market, limited government message? Mistakes for elections for decades hangs in the balance. Kristen Soltis Anderson presents a portion of the young person's mindset in her new book, The Selfie Vote. We spoke this week. In your research, what do you find to be the most uh, compelling and likely uh, affecting difference between millennials and older voters when it comes to how they express their politics? I don't know that there's any one particular variable. I think a lot of it is uh, you, you can boil it down to two things, culture and technology. So young people uh, are using technology and social media in ways that their parents or grandparents never could have dreamed of to share their opinions, to get information, to connect, to organize. And then culturally, the way they think about things like family, religion, community, um, what it is to be right and wrong, uh, those things are all a little bit different for this generation as well. So it's hard to boil it down to one thing, but I I think the two groups that I look at are how they they look at things in terms of technology and then how they um, experience culture. So you also uh, in your book talk about how uh, young people tend to uh, either reject or not participate in these much larger institutions uh, in American culture, uh, marriage being one notable issue. So how does technology feed that? I think part of the way that technology feeds that – so let's take, for instance, uh, religion. Um, that's another one of the big institutions where um, you're seeing a slight increase in the number of young people who say they don't affiliate with any particular religion. Um, And even those who are affiliated with a religion, while they're just as likely to say their religion is important to them, their faith is important to them, they're less likely to show up and go to church every Sunday. Um, But you now have new ways of sort of consuming information um, that can allow you to experience your faith in new ways. So in the book, I talk about something called Relevant Magazine. It's a magazine that's aimed at young Christians. Um, It had Reese Witherspoon on the cover as I was writing the book. Um, You know, so it tries to engage with pop culture and, and, and have mainstream appeal, um, focus on faith, but not in, a, in what I would consider to be sort of a preachy or off-putting or judgmental way. Um, and so that's, you know, the fact that you can now go to Relevant online and subscribe to this magazine and find this community of other people who sort of approach spirituality the same way that you do, I think has uh, changed how people feel that they need to experience their religion. They don't just have to do what their parents or grandparents did because they're exposed to so many different new ways you can approach something like faith. This appears to be a pitch to essentially the Republican Party. This is how to engage with these young people. Where do you sense that there's going to be the most resistance to what you have to say? I think that there will be resistance in a few pieces. I think there will be resistance to changing how we operate campaigns just at a very tactical level. I spent some time in the selfie vote talking about um, the turf wars that happen inside campaigns and giving priority to things like digital and data analytics, things that the left have used very effectively. I think there's a lot of money in campaigns and and I, I think that that is what will wind up preventing the right from being as innovative and giving things like digital a seat at the table. Um, so there will be resist- tactical resistance. But then in terms of um, policy areas, 
I, I try to be careful throughout the book to never come at this from the position of here's where the right needs to change its mind on something. My goal is not to tell people um, you believed X but now you must believe Y in order to win young people. Instead, my goal is to say if you believe in limited government, if you truly believe in the free market to solve problems, here are opportunities that are out there that no one has taken advantage of yet. So I don't know that it'll be resistance in the sense of people saying, well, I disagree with that. That's against my principles and I won't support it. But instead, just resistance to the idea, this fear that if you're standing for something, you're putting a target out there. Um, why don't we just beat up on the other side? Why do I need to? Why do I even need to focus on young people at all? I think that's more of where the resistance will come from. Why does this matter? rather than why should I believe this? What do you think have been the biggest missed opportunities for uh, Republicans or conservatives to sell free markets and limited government uh, where the, the left, for lack of a better term, has effectively beaten up on them for it? So I think if we take a look at how young people want to structure their careers, there's huge opportunity. Um, young people want to, are more likely to want to be entrepreneurs to start their own business. And so a, a big missed opportunity is I don't think we've talked about how our ideas make that more of a reality. We talk about it in, in abstract terms. And because we're so used to talking to other folks that are like-minded, um, you know, we sometimes forget that we have to connect point A to point B. Here's why limited government makes it easier for you to be an entrepreneur. An example that I give in the selfie vote is of President Obama doing an interview on MTV where he extols the virtues of repealing financial regulations to allow small investors um, to contribute so that their friends can raise capital, you know, crowdfunding, Kickstarter. This was our democratic president embracing a sort of limited, reducing regulation idea. Um, you never heard the right talking about it. And so that's an example of a huge missed opportunity where the other side was there talking about our ideas but on their terms. And taking credit for them. And and I think – or take the health care law, for instance. I mean you've, you've now got a situation where I, you, you know that the right opposes the Affordable Care Act. You've got a lot of young people who say, well, I don't know that I would have had insurance without the Affordable Care Act. And in the absence of an explanation of why our vision for the health care system is better and leads to higher quality and lower cost and – you know, no rationing and the ability, you know, more portability and more freedom. We, if we don't explain what our vision for the health, a truly market-based healthcare system looks like, um, we wind up sort of playing on their turf and being the bad guy who wants to take healthcare away from people. So for uh, Republicans who care about free markets, and that's certainly not all of them, uh, and limited government, what are the specific things that you suggest they do to get out in front of it? As, as you pointed out uh, before we started recording, people, uh, Republicans need to say what they're for. I think Republicans need to say what they're for. And I think that they can't just look um, – the, the, the outcomes that they talk about wanting to achieve can't just be – ideological and abstract in nature. I think they need to be very concrete and very applicable to people's lives, particularly young people's lives, um, who for, for many of these millennials, they haven't voted in tons of elections. They haven't been in the political process for decades and decades. Um, you've really got to explain why limited government, why economic liberty does lead to something positive in their lives. One thing that you consciously did not talk about in this book is foreign policy. That's right. And so uh, – since you know the since 2001 the U US foreign policy has changed radically is there a strong sense that this is 
imbued millennials with a specific view of uh, America's role in the world and whether or not we should be going on foreign adventures? So the, the polling on where young people stand on national security, defense, and foreign affairs issues uh, in general seems to indicate that there's a hesitance toward uh, you know, foreign engagement, that there's th- – this is both a generation that gets that we live in a, a global world and that what happens on the other side of the world affects us dramatically. And so in that sense, America needs to be engaged with the international community but are somewhat more skeptical of um, military engagement because so many of these millennials grew up in the in the shadow of 9-11 and the reaction to 9-11, including the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and how those have turned out. But for the younger millennials who actually don't remember – the, the Bush administration much at all. Um, I, I have seen data um, that coming from the Harvard Institute of Politics that suggests that younger millennials are a little more open to things like boots on the ground to fight ISIS. Um, so the reason why I intentionally avoid talking about foreign policy in the book is because the, po- the polling is so fluid on it and because you know, external events really reshape public opinion, particularly youth public opinion, I think very, very dramatically and very quickly. Uh, You say that your goal here is not to uh, push some group of people to actually change their deeply held or even their weekly held opinions on on certain issues, but certainly same-sex marriage, marijuana legalization, and immigration are important especially to libertarians, important issues. But how do you – and you treat them as distinct issues. Most people say, oh, these are social issues. But uh, you you are careful to distinguish that uh, between these issues. Right. So I I think a lot of times when folks use the term social issues, it's it's a basket into which they are throwing all of the issues where they disagree with the other side. And they say, well, the other side needs to change its position on social issues and whatever they want to throw in that bucket. Their single position on social issues. Right. Um, So I I do view each of those those issues and the public opinion dynamics around them a a little bit individually. But let's take same-sex marriage as a great example. So in my book, I talk about how millennials are have this very different view of family. They're not interested in the government stepping in and defining what is and is not a family. Um, and family is very important to this generation. Um, they're not looking for politicians to define what family is, though. So if you are a politician who holds the view that marriage is defined as between one man and one woman and you are disheartened by the recent Supreme Court decision – I'm not advocating that you sort of cravenly pander and change your views, you know, because you want to win votes. I think millennials have a great BS detector. I think they know when people are just trying to pander and I don't think it works out very well for them. Um, On the other hand, I do think there's something to be said for the tone of how we approach these issues. So if you look at the responses to the Supreme Court's decision in same-sex marriage, um, the responses have been across the board from the different Republican candidates for president. You have some that have said, we need to get rid of the Supreme Court. (laughs) You have others that have instead said, you know, I I view marriage as between a man and a woman, but the court has decided. And so now we just need to protect religious liberty and we need to be loving and tolerant of our, our brothers and sisters regardless of their sexual orientation. End of story. And I think those that's that's a really effective way of dealing with it short of deciding to change your position on an issue. One of the things that I think is, is probably most compelling for uh, politicos that really want to take some of your advice to heart is uh, trying to portray broadly the left as the status quo. And we've grown up, almost all of us have grown up with a model of the regulatory state that was crafted in the New Deal where if it's not 
explicitly allowed, it is very likely forbidden. And so you, t- you take some examples like craft beer, Uber, and other sort of up startup entrepreneurial ideas and say, this is the world the left has given you, which is uh, very intrusive. So how do you take that and turn it and craft it into a message that uh, well, young people will connect with? Well, I, I think those two examples that I mentioned in the book, as well as things like uh, for instance, the status quo in higher education or the status quo in health care, status quo in retirements, um, status quo pensions. You know, there's so much that is a sort of ineffective status quo that is defended by by the left, by unions, by bureaucracy. Um, and it's the right that has the ideas to inject freedom where it is much needed, um, to liberate things so that new ideas can flourish rather than being stifled. So, I mean, I think it's very easy to, to find a thread that runs through all of those those examples and to say, you know, the, the, the political right um, has been branded as being out of touch. And certainly some of that is the Quote, the cultural issues, perhaps, is, is the better the phrase I'll use. Well, and it's also issues. true in a lot of areas. <laughs> um, but but you know when you, that extends then to how people think about um, l- you know free market ideas, they they think, well, you know that's 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 of the past. You know wh- why would we want total anarchy? Has hasn't society progressed to a point where now we we have all of these great you know we can we can press put the brakes on things when we need to? And I mean I think you, you the, perhaps the only demographic shift that is benefiting the political right is the decline in union membership. And it's so, so very often across the board, um, it's like public sector unions and bureaucracy and outdated regulation that are the status quo that are preventing change. I think focusing on this uh, and, and recognizing that, you know, the political right should not fear the changes in society, they should embrace them. They should figure out how to ride the wave, use the wind um, to, in, in to, to use the wind to help push their boat forward. Um, I, I think that's – I think what you've defined there is exactly right, that we need to talk about where the left is the roadblock. And in Washington, D.C., you talk about policy issues and it's very easy to uh, articulate a clearly defined ideological line. But voters in general – and as you point out, millennials are no different, are largely collections of contradictory ideas. Exactly. Very are, much that so. Are, that are, depending on how they're phrased, maybe completely agreeable or disagreeable. So can you talk about how millennials uh, uniquely uh, are these bundles of contradictions when it comes to their political views? So millennials in general are very label averse. They don't like calling themselves either Republicans or Democrats. But at the same token, they don't like calling themselves feminists or environmentalists or ascribe, you know, putting a particular religious label on themselves or, or what have you. Um, so, you know, it's not a right-left thing. It's a sort of an, an anti-labels thing. And um, as a result, you know, you do see this, this phenomenon where young voters will say, well, you know, I like these issues from the Democratic Party, and then, but then I, I like – these couple of things that I think Republicans say they stand for, and then there are these issues where I don't think either party really has it right. And you, you, you've got less of this, I need to put on a Team R or Team D jersey and, and go along with the whole 
party platform, you just see that that has broken down a little bit for for younger voters. And and in terms of voting, if they're not identifying, who are they voting for? So at the moment, even though many they're identifying as independents, but they're they're also much more likely to identify as a Democrat than a Republican if they do choose a, a party. And it's that's showing up in the voting behavior that that you have Democrats are pretty consistently um, winning among this generation. And it wasn't always the case. This is a big myth I find myself having to debunk a lot. There's this idea that young people are always more likely to vote for the progressive party, always more likely to vote for the Democrats. And in the year 2000, for instance, the exit polls did not show a difference between how young people and senior citizens voted. Um, Al Gore and George W. Bush split young people. They split senior citizens. They split middle-aged voters. I mean, it was that you had these very, very fine grain shifts between the generations, but it wasn't anything very large. Fast forward to the 2008 and 2012 elections, and you see these enormous generational poll, you know, this huge generation gap that has emerged. Um, so at the moment, young voters are leaning much more toward the Democrats, which is why I wrote this book as both sounding an alarm for Republicans who want to remain competitive with this generation um, and also to kind of give them, a, in some small way, a roadmap for what to do about it. Libertarians uh, in, in many areas don't have much use for Republicans, but one area <laughs> where Republicans are useful is uh, trying to advocate on behalf of federalism, which is to say reducing the role of the federal government, increasing the role of state governments and individuals to uh, deal with uh, issues. Uh, one of the key issues where uh, Republicans, at least on an ideological basis, were broadly aligned with uh, libertarians was the case of Gonzalez v. Raich years ago, where the federal government essentially said, well, you know, states, you don't get to make these decisions. The federal government gets to make these decisions. And this was, to me, that signaled a real opportunity for Republicans to say, look, I don't like the way these states are treating marijuana, but I respect the institutions that we have in place to allow states to make these kinds of decisions. And it just seems like Republicans until very recently weren't trying to pick up this idea that federalism is something that uh, young people could uh, could get behind. Well, and I, I, my caution would be that federalism is, is also one of those things that we shouldn't view as a uh, – that for most voters, they wouldn't view it as an end in and of itself. That federalism is good because it can lead to other outcomes. It can lead to better public policy. It can, you know, lead to the laboratories of democracy, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think there's a really big constituency of millennials who are huge states' rights advocates. However, um, the idea that you have some entity that is very large and very distant and very far away in Washington D.C. Um, making decisions is, I think, in inherently unsettling to a generation that has unplugged itself from so many big traditional institutions. Things that are big and distant are not good. Things that are close and personal and authentic are good. Um, so while I don't know that there's a huge federalism constituency among millennials, I think there's an opportunity to take the argument for federalism and make it as this is how we're leading to better public policy outcomes. So part of the, part of the broader narrative of smaller government, limited uh, limited government, free markets, that sort of thing. I think so. But again, you know, free markets, limited government not being ends in and of themselves, but means sure. to ends. Kristen Soltis Anderson is author of The Selfie Vote. Download the new Cato Audio app for your iOS device. Get access to the Cato Institute's six podcasts. Learn more at cato.org.